Protein engineers. More CRISPR. DIY bio. The molecular basis of life. What is synthetic biology? Hello, hello, and welcome to the Gene Mods News Quiz. I'm Jordan Harrison. I'm Adam Silverman. And I'm Kristen Jung. Uh, we don't have Isaac this this month, so Kristen is going to be filling in for him. Um, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm Kristen. I'm a first-year PhD here at Northwestern in Locke's lab. Um, I'm currently working on developing RNA biosensor. That's, that's about it. Awesome. Very cool. And before we go any further, Jordan, I think there's some exciting news you should share with our listeners. Oh, sure. Yeah, we can. I can give a personal life update. Um, I... Uh, I was uh, undergrad at Northwestern, and I have now since graduated. Um, and now I am a research technician, also at Northwestern. Awesome. Well, thanks for staying around here. Um, I just couldn't leave Northwestern. They have good benefits, so that's good. This is a note to our listeners. Northwestern, great benefits, great research. <laughs> Come on down. <laughs> okay, uh, so let's get started. Oh, before we before we start, we also have to say we always have to say what synthetic biology is. I think oh. it's Kirsten's turn. Um, sure. It's, I'll try my best. Um, I think, in my opinion, synthetic biology is taking biology and sort of kind of like taking advantage of the systems that biology has to offer and engineer it to our own needs. So, for example, to produce um, useful chemicals or molecules that, are, that have uh, potential applications in medicines or even just commercially related or relevant molecules, um, therapeutics, but yeah, basically just engineering biology. That's a great answer. Sounds about right. Yeah. Awesome. But how much do you know about synthetic biology? Oh boy. Oh boy. We'll see. You're we'll see. In we'll see. A couple minutes. Chris and I <laughs> sit next to each other in labs, so there, uh, there might be some good trash talking happening over the course <laughs> of this news quiz. We'll see. All right. So, uh, yeah. So I'm asking the questions this time. Um, Are you keeping score? I, well, uh, do we ever keep score? No. I'll give you no. points, but I can explain the scoring system. So in the past couple episodes, the scoring has been a bit, little bit ridiculous, but mine is uh, much more transparent. I think I'm gonna I'm gonna have uh, allocate points from one to five based on what I think the difficulty of the question is. So. Oh, I see. Okay. It is. I have determined what the number of points is ahead of time. Oh my goodness, you're so organized. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's sort so of. It's prepared. a little bit arbitrary. It's just like how hard I think the question is. But okay. And if there's a bounce back, you get that number of points. Okay. Pressure's on. Here we go. Pressure's on. Here we go. Okay. Uh, let's see. All right. The first question is going to be for Adam. Okay, the European Court of Justice just declared that what is a GMO and is now subject to more regulations. Hmm. I do not know this. I could guess, but... You can totally guess. It's a very guess. broad category. Hmm. Broad category of things that are now GMOs and subject to... I don't know. Uh, engineered yeast. I don't know. Uh, not exactly. Uh, I would say no. Okay. Kristen? <laughs> Is it a very broad definition? It's a very broad category. Huh. Is it just artificially genetically modified organisms? I don't know, that's very broad. <laughs> Are genetically modified <laughs> organisms GMOs? <laughs> um, so it would maybe help to give some background on how Europe sort of classifies GMOs. So in the past, a GMO is anything 
they've said that a GMO is anything that has a foreign gene inserted into something else. Mm-hmm. So this is a little bit different from that. And it's, uh, it's uh, Adam, you made a joke about the hints that we give. So think about, mm-hmm. so think about that. So if you artificially insert a gene into something, then it was originally a GMO. Yeah. So now, is it maybe that you are evolving an organism to, to well, that's just breeding. That's not really yeah. right. I don't yeah. know, making a targeted mutation to a genome. Hmm. We're not doing too hot here. No. <laughs> okay. What is it? What is it? It's the distinction. Be- so it's anything that's gene edited. So oh. anything that has a gene cut out, basically. See, so I didn't realize something, that was in a GMO Something, already. something huh. that's CRISPR. No, so this is uh, really interesting. Yeah. So starts with C, rhymes with whisper. Oh, there you go. CRISPR. See, CRISPR. Okay, uh, there we go. CRISPR or any other gene editing uh, tool. So the distinction here is that for, for Europe, there was a sort of ruling in 2001, I think, that said that GMOs are anything that has a foreign gene inserted into a crop or some sort of food. So for example... I think some strawberries have genes from like salmon or something that uh, help them tolerate the cold, that help oh, them be frost resistant. Right. I think that's a thing. Arctic fish protein, I think is what it called. Mm-hmm. So that, that is sounds a right. G- that sounds right. That's a GMO. So this would now include anything that's gene edited. So uh, think like Arctic apples, the ones that have the gene for browning cut out. So, oh. so that was the main distinction between what is GM and what is not GM in the past. The other thing that is not included in what in a GMO is uh, anything made by mutagenesis. So like irradiating something okay. and like creating random mutations mm-hmm. and then selecting for whatever you want out mm-hmm. of that. So that's not a GMO. Um, which and some, it's still not a GMO. It's still not a GMO, oh, okay. which some people have said that's sort of like a little hypocritical because you're still inducing mutations. It's just less focused I think sort of the inserting genes from one thing to another is what scares people a little bit because it's like, oh, you have a fish protein in your strawberries. Yeah. That's weird, even though it's all the same DNA in everything that is living. But um, so, so is that the same in the U.S. compared to the Europe? Um, I'm not sure, but uh, there could be ramifications in the U.S. for this because basically. This is going to slow down, I think, a lot of like CRISPR and gene editing research in Europe by a lot. Sure, um, yeah. I've was reading some opinion pieces that are like thinking that this sort of research is going to move elsewhere, um, and I don't know like how much food and crops gets imported from Europe to the U.S., but that could have an impact as well. Mm-hmm. Maybe I think it's interesting just like what the like terminology is and what like the distinction like where people draw the line between what is a genetically modified organism and what isn't and i think this will also like include a lot of like new labeling laws for what is what is the gmo in europe um in addition to research so this is basically just saying that there's going to be a lot more regulations that things have to go through to get on the market so I don't think it's like, it's not a ban, but it's like going to be a lot harder yeah, to get your research out there. That's interesting. I know in the U.S. there's a lot of, frankly, laughable distinctions between GM and not GM. Um, there was some, uh, an incident at the latest seed conference, actually, where I think it was uh, Jake Kiesling was presenting some of the work with like the engineered yeast systems that they use, but they were declared non-GM, probably because of what you're saying is that it's it sounds like 
they, I mean, they did, you know, traditional gene editing, but they didn't just take a gene from another Other organism, organism. Yeah. so it doesn't count as a GMO, um, which is really valuable if you're using yeast to make something like beer, because mm -hmm. GMO beer, I think, is a bridge that we are not currently willing to cross in this country. Maybe we, I mean, I, I, I think GMO beer would be kind of cool. It'd be kinda, yeah, I mean, maybe, like maybe like hipster, hipster enough to like work. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you could like just have the bridge between synthetic biologists and like microbreweries, which yeah. is like already pretty close. I feel like half the synthetic biology faculty that I know are they like secretly brew. brewing yeah. in their backyards. <laughs> Not that I'm saying that Northwestern does that. <laughs> uh, we do. Uh, we totally do. Totally do. Um, yeah, that's, that's that's a really interesting distinction between them. I didn't realize that that was like the main thing, but I mean, from a scientific perspective, it makes sense that they would bring those into line. I, I agree with you that it's a little bit concerning what's going to happen mm -hmm. economically, scientifically. Yeah, that's sort of the distinction from what I've read, and that was the the court of justice there. So, was the point about the mutagenesis not being like a part of GMO? Is that even though you're introducing some pressure, you're not actually physically editing the gene yourself, I guess? Yeah, I guess it is about how targeted it is. Yeah, okay. It's the whole idea of, like, if you make a very distinct change, I guess you're, like, I playing like God or something. I feel like that's more safe than not knowing what's going to change in the genome when you do, like, sort of a directed evolution type of work. But directed evolution, I mean, that would be like saying that anything under natural selection to some extent is a GMO, which... Yeah, that's true. Boy, that would that's be unfortunate, true. right? Yeah, that's but true. it's it's pretty hard to distinguish. I mean, we've been doing artificial selection for thousands yeah. of years yeah. since agriculture was invented. So. I mean, I'm sure all three of us in this room kind of roll our eyes at the whole GMO label in general and mm -hmm. how that has. Well, I don't think that the GMO labeling is necessarily a bad thing. So um, I think it depends on like how like the labels are set up. So I think like so with Arctic apples, uh, this is like something that. I saw it symbio. I saw it coming out of symbio beta was like, Arctic apples are these apples that have edits that make them like non-browning, so they don't mm -hmm. go out as fast. Mm -hmm. um, I think they come. They their labeling has like a QR code on it or something that you can scan, and it'll take you to a website that explains oh. how all like how they're made and how the gene editing works. Mm -hmm. So I think if you have like labels that are like actually informative, that might actually help. The GMO cause then hurt it, but then the whole thing like, the whole like butterfly not made with GMOs thing. It's like happy butterfly. <laughs> just that's annoying. It's hard to argue against a happy butterfly. Jordan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, no success. No points there. Okay. No yeah, points. It's okay. We're not keeping track. Lots of care. lots of discussion. No points. <laughs> no points. <laughs> okay. So this one is for Kirsten. Uh, this is another sort of uh, food-related question. What food additive just got approved as safe to eat by the FDA? Food additive? Yes. Hmm. Is it a specific chemical? or? Um, it's a specific protein. Oh. Hmm. I can also... Adam, do you know... I mean, I can guess as well. I'll let you take sure. a guess. No, I, I have no... I, I, I would guess, is it the hemoglobin stuff that they're putting in the Impossible Burger? It is the hemoglobin. Oh, it is okay. hemoglobin. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so soy soy hemoglobin. So Impossible Impossible Foods, I think we've talked about this on the podcast before, but um, Impossible Foods is a company that is making a better 
veggie burger, basically. There, there's a lot of like research right now into clean meat and mm. like um, plant-based meat alternatives. So Impossible Foods is making a veggie burger that has hemoglobin in it, which is sort of the protein that makes meat taste meaty and bleeds a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, that it sort of like releases those flavors and aroma when it's heated up. Um, but you can get a version of this from plants, from soy specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, but the difference between Impossible Foods and a lot of other companies that are sort of making similar veggie burgers is they um, get their soy uh, hemoglobin from genetic engineering by sort of mass producing it in yeast. Oh. Um, and so they have been waiting to get this uh, ruling from the FDA for a while now, and it has been like declared safety at this point. So that's a major victory for them. Um, some not major victories for Impossible Foods, and I think this is maybe a backlash to this FDA uh, approval, is PETA has been giving them a really hard time, and it's sort of very uh, annoying. Why? Because, so I think PETA is just like objects to the genetic engineering, and they also like had like some sort of post or like article that they were like that Impossible Foods like did testing on mice to in order to like test to make sure their burger was safe which I read like a statement by uh, I forget Patrick I don't remember what their uh, who their CEO or what his name is but I think that this was part of the FDA thing where they had submitted the soy hemoglobin to get approved before and the FDA just wanted some more data on it so I think that's why they did some mouse okay. studies but PETA was like no you you killed your mice <laughs> and I think just a lot of like the friends of the earth is the same thing a lot of like environmental groups are just don't like genetically modified things even though you can have an environmental mission and a sort of like animal like anti-animal cruelty yeah. kind of mission with genetic engineering like, those things aren't incompatible. Um, but PETA has been giving them a really hard time. It's just um, shocking to me that PETA would give them a hard time. Like, they are on the same side of this. Yeah, Theoretically, like, Theoretically. you're talking about vegetarianism right here. I'm, I'm kind of alarmed about this fact that I didn't realize that this just got approved by the FDA because, like, I have seen the Impossible Burger being sold in restaurants... Yeah, Since currently. presumably before yeah. that, so yeah. Well, no, I think that you can you can like sell your product before it gets approved by the FDA. I think it just really means. I think it just depends on the liability that the whatever chain uh, takes on. I think that just means that it'll be available in more and more places now. Gotcha. Okay, well that's good to know. I also did you see the thing about New Zealand with the Impossible Burger? No, what happened? I talked New about this in the podcast. So um, Air New Zealand started serving the impossible burgers on like their international flights and the prime minister of new zealand found out about this and went on twitter and started talking about how like he opposes all of this new fancy you know vegetarianism because you know new zealand has a huge um they have a lot of sheep and a lot of cows there so they, oh, yeah, they there's do all, more yeah. livestock so than like, people there. yeah it's like hurting their their economy, economy yeah. for having for having this on their flights and he like took to twitter and then there was a bunch of backlash against the prime minister of oh, new zealand yeah. not supporting the impossible burger on oh, twitter no. have oh. you tried it yet i have yeah no i've had it twice it's actually i i really enjoyed it 
It doesn't bleed, though. That seems like false advertising That's to me. what I've heard from everyone that's eaten it. It tastes meaty, though. Yeah. I, I enjoy the taste. It's just sort of the texture is not quite there yet. Yeah. It's exciting. Yeah. Okay. This one is back to Adam. Oh, okay, so that means that uh, Adam got the points on that one. Yes. Uh, that was worth uh, three points. That's three sort points. of middle of the road. Three points. Okay. Three points for Adam. Gotta catch up. That's okay. There's plenty more. Um, okay, Adam, this is for you. A paper by Alan Bradley in Nature Biotechnology claimed that CRISPR has problems with what? Oh boy, there's lots of things that CRISPR has problems with, though. Yeah. Uh, is this the part where it's uh, activating P53? No, that's a different no, paper. That's a different paper. Hmm. CRISPR has problems with what? Um, is it... Off-target mutations. CRISPR has a lot of problems when you come to think about it. I don't know. Kirsten, you got I anything? mean, I can think of two things, but they're not new problems, so I'm I would be surprised if they're. Well, let's list them so that we can list out all yeah, the possible okay, well, things already, that are wrong with CRISPR, and then we'll add another one to the list. Yeah. Okay, fun. You already mentioned one, which is off-target issues, and there's also the immune response issues mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in humans. Yep. Those are the two things I could think of on top of my head right now. And then the recent one, which is that CRISPR editing seems to preferentially impact cells that have defective gene repair, yes, yeah. which is traditionally cancer cells, so that's not good either if the thing that you're trying to make only right. goes to cancer cells, but apparently it's none of those, so... I think, actually, Adam, I think you were close enough with uh, off-target oh, yeah. mutations. I think it is that it's off-target mutations, but it's like that with very large-scale deletions. Oh, oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I actually, I think I saw this paper, like kilobases deletions. Or yeah, kilobases very, deletions. very large. Yeah, I, I Good lord. That. How does that and even happen? And I think happen? like chromosomal rearrangements and stuff. I don't know what the mechanism for that is, but it was a pretty, it's been a pretty controversial paper. I heard a random postdoc in my lab, like talking to another postdoc about it. He's like, have you seen this CRISPR paper? Boy, I CRISPR think it, has just like not had a good couple of months. Yeah, it seems like every time the bad news comes out about CRISPR, there's like a bioarchive thing or like a response that is like disproving or like refuting the claims in the paper and saying it's not actually a problem or like pointing out poking holes in the um, in the claims of the paper. I think that happened with like the Metalopov uh, mm -hmm. paper. Yep. I'm curious. So. They're saying that if you CRISPR edit a genome, then just like massive deletions happen out of the genome. Like randomly, or uh, I'm not quite sure. I think so, though. Because like this is the same sort of thing that they were talking about a year ago when they said that when you CRISPR edit things, there's a gajillion off-target mutations that happen that aren't at the spots that you would expect to see off-target mutations, and that claim has been pretty heavily debunked on BioArchive basically just doing sequencing. You'd imagine that if the same thing happened, and they again did the sequencing, like you're the expert on sequencing, but I feel like you would notice if there were a thousand. Maybe it depends on the cell type as well. Yeah. What kind of, like what kind of organisms were they working in, like human cells? Oh, uh, that was in mice, that, that paper anyway. Okay, I think they used some human, I think they used human cell lines for this one. Mm. Um, but yeah, I will have to look into this more, but. Yeah, there's a lot of back and forth with CRISPR problems. And part of it is that the people that are supporting the CRISPR are the Jennifer Doudnas and Feng Zhangs and George Churches of the world that have access to all these resources to do these experiments to, because, frankly, they have massive companies that have 
huge upside if they can maintain sort of the hype around CRISPR. Mm -hmm. And it seems like there's a lot of other labs that are, you know, whether or not they're right or not, you know, the, the, the last bit with the off-target mutations wound up to be wrong, um, sort of poking holes on the side of that thing that they've established, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. So I think you both had parts of the question right, so I'm going to give you both one point, because you said you pointed, or Christian point. I, I am pointing to people, <laughs> which you can not see for the people who are listening. Chris, uh, Kirsten, you pointed out that the kilo, they were like very large deletions and kilobases, and you and Adam pointed out uh, that it was sort of off-target stuff. So. One point each. Yes. So one Teamwork. point for each. Uh, okay. So that's three points, or so. Four points. Adam has four points, and Kirsten has one point. I thought we weren't even keeping track of points. Yeah. Well, we'll forget by the end of it. So. <laughs> Never fear. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, this one is for Kirsten. A recent Pew Research study surveyed uh, a two, uh, approximately like 2,500 American adults about how they felt about changing the genetic characteristics of babies using gene editing tools. Oh, what did God. they find? In the survey? I'm guessing negative. It's family feud right here. <laughs> uh, it's that it's negative? Generally a negative? I mean, it's, yeah, I'm assuming it's going to be a very negative response. This is how but, we should play it. So you guess a percentage, I guess a percentage that hated it, and then we see who's closer. It's probably um, not a good plan. I would say I'll give you points for that. That it is the the survey said that there was more. They were more worried than enthusiastic about the results right. of gene editing. But actually, uh, there was about a 50-50 split about whether people would s said that they would use gene editing to edit, like really? to make to. Um, uh, to edit out like genetic diseases Disease. that's fair okay, that's fair. yeah for yeah. for disease specifically people were like pretty much split on it that's an interesting question actually yeah. i think one that maybe doesn't get as much play because there's so much concern about designer babies but... i feel like the word design is misleading in this case though because if people well i guess the 50 percent of the people who responds positive to this survey was more in the line of you know if I had, if I know that I have known genetic diseases in my family, you want to like eliminate that possibility in your babies. I feel like that's not necessarily designing the babies. It's more like preventing diseases. Mm -hmm. So it's still designed. Really, it kind of is. I mean, to the extent that you know, oh boy, you know, my unborn child is going to have cystic fibrosis, and I know that if I do this point mutation, I can fix it. Right. But. Um, to some extent, that's an ethical question on par with um, all of the other things that I think we have in, in our society, whether that's abortion, if you want to abort, like, um, a, you know, if, mm. if there's genetic testing. That I think it's something I think it's something that, that, that needs to be discussed, and I don't think it gets discussed enough because people sort of always go to the extreme end of, oh my God, what if I CRISPR'd my baby to have really big muscles and a superhero or something right mm -hmm. but um it's a really interesting question yeah. so yeah there's a a couple of interesting results from this survey that um it, they also correlated like how much people already know about gene editing and if you are more familiar mm -hmm. with gene editing you're more likely to be enthusiastic about it 
which makes a lot of sense. Right. Um, people who were responded as saying they were very religious were sort of uh, were definitely a lot more negative about it. Yeah. It's another culture war. It's another one, I think, that, that's a really interesting point because we are now at the point where for some of these molecular diseases like sickle cell anemia, like mm-hmm. cystic fibrosis, where it is very clear what the genotype is for this disease right. and you can, if you're playing God and you can change, change that base pair, do you do it? It's an interesting question. It just gets very hard with like these like polygenic diseases that are like very hard to untangle though because right. most of the the those like single base mutation diseases are like more the exception than the rule though exactly. in the realm of human disease. Yeah, because then what do we do when it gets to oh you know such and such has a twenty percent higher disposition of Alzheimer's mm-hmm. when they're eighty years old? Right. Mm-hmm. Do you try to change it? I mean, not that I think we really, frankly, any idea what is the cause of Alzheimer's, but if we can imagine a future where we do, then, or the HER2 gene or something, right? Like mm-hmm. higher prevalence of breast cancer. Mm-hmm. What's the what's the ethics of it? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Something to think about. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah, you you got the question right for the most part. I think I Barely. was going to be a five-point question. Uh, you got a little bit of it, so I, I would say four points. Wow, that's good. very generous. That's four very points. It's all right. I'll catch up. Cool. Okay, so uh, the next one is for Adam. Uh, DNA script reached a milestone of 50 nucleotides using what new... Method. I do know this. Although it's still unclear how they're doing it, but they claim it's enzymatic DNA synthesis. Yes, right? that is yes, correct. Yes, yes. I don't know if you're... Are you going to talk about the Kiesling paper later? Uh, I didn't actually look at the Kiesling paper that much, but if you want to talk about okay. it, because these are related. Yes, yeah. yeah. So uh, this has been a great month for DNA synthesis, particularly mm-hmm. enzymatic DNA synthesis. So traditionally, DNA is synthesized chemically, which mm-hmm. basically means you take an adenine and then you chemically ligate on a cysteine cytosine <laughs> cytosine <laughs> and then a thymine and then you keep going that way it's slow it's expensive and it's kind of difficult to do and it's that's also like chemically abrasive or chemically the, abrasive yeah kind of hazardous a little it's bit it's similar to solid phase peptide synthesis mm-hmm. in a way if you're comparing that to the protein community but dna synthesis i feel like that technology actually the guy that discovered it i think is still alive and it's a lot of similar like the chemistries are very similar you have to use a lot of protecting groups it's Mm -hmm. it's complicated Mm -hmm. um and you're limited i think to about like 200 base pairs at a time and then if you want a larger g block or whatever you have to stitch them together synthesize them together so when you go and order something from twist or idt this is pretty much what they have to do right? right so coming up with a better way of doing it than chemically would be nice obviously nature has figured out a way of making dna using dna polymerases but those are all templated approaches. Mm-hmm. So, you can, so you have to have an existing strand of DNA to right. make exactly. another strand of DNA. You can't be like, you know, tell your enzyme, all right, I want you to make A, C, G, T, A, C, G, T, and so on in that order. It's really hard to do. So there's, um, I don't actually know what DNA script does because it's proprietary technology, mm-hmm. um, but I do know how the Kiesling lab, and they just published a paper mm-hmm. um, that, uh, 
Oh, I did sort of it's look at very this similar I in terms of doing it. DNA synthesis. Um, what they use is these this class of enzymes called TDT polymerases, I think is what they're called. Mm -hmm. And these are um, enzymes that are actually used, I think, to make telomeres in cells or something yeah, along the, this line. Yeah. They're untemplated. So you can give this, this um, polymerase a nucleotide and it will... Uh, add it to the end of your template, which is really nice. The challenge with doing that, though, you can imagine is, you know, you could give your polymerase a T, and it might add one T onto your growing strand, or it might add two T's to your growing strand, or mm -hmm. three T's onto your growing strand. It's very difficult to um, control. So people add like blocking groups that you can only add one nucleotide at the end, but then if you have the blocking group, then the polymerase doesn't recognize the blocking group very well. So it's just a really difficult mm -hmm. thing to make work. So the Kiesling it's lab- sort of, It's sort of similar to, I forget which early form of, I think it was Roche 454 had a similar problem with their uh, sequencing was that mm -hmm. they sort of, you put in your nucleotides all at one time and then it couldn't tell like how many T's or A's or whatever in a row that you had and it it was probably a similar probably a reason that nobody really uses that anymore yeah but. yeah it's the the analogy to sequencing is really good mm -hmm. um where they use like the dideoxy NTPs to sort of get around that problem too um here what they do though is they actually physically covalently link the nucleotide to the polymerase mm -hmm. and then they add the growing strand to it yeah add it on lock it and then add a new polymerase with the with the nucleotide chemically yeah. linked on and they keep adding this in and on and on and on so that you have no chance of adding more than one nucleotide at a time because the nucleotides are chemically linked to the polymerases mm. they can do this in cycles and the paper that they show they can get um really robust synthesis of of oligonucleotides um there's not a lot of bias so the probability of ligating on any given nucleotide at a given position seems to be pretty consistent. They can get above 95-96% at any given step, which is apparently good enough, or at least much better than the uh, current chemical methods of doing this. But you can imagine just how much cheaper it would be if you could do this enzymatically, and there's so much more optimization I can imagine. So this is really exciting news because DNA synthesis prices, although have gone down a lot mm -hmm. in recent years, I would say DNA synthesis is still one of the major roadblocks in advancing the field of synthetic biology because of how slow it is. And I mean, to this day, you know, you have companies like Ginkgo that are just buying all of the DNA in the world, right? But if you can speed up DNA synthesis, imagine how much faster it is for prototyping, mm -hmm. information storage. Mm -hmm. It's really exciting. But don't you need like a primer in order to start the sort of enzymatic synthesis reaction and then uh, at some point you need to synthesize the primer i guess yeah that was one thing i was that was a question i had when i looked at that paper yeah like, and they've the got primer? these modified nucleotides that have some sort of chemical handle on the end of it that i think is also serving some of that purpose and maybe that's also something to do with the, the linking step that they have to do between adjacent nucleotides mm -hmm. um i imagine that if you can design that that handle though the starting thing then you can cleave it off at the end mm -hmm. i don't actually remember exactly how they accomplished that but i think you're right i think you can't just start it from scratch like a single nucleotide per se yeah
Do you remember how long of a DNA they were able to make using that method? I think it was similar to what DNA script okay. did. I think mm -hmm. it's like in the vicinity of fifty nucleotides mm -hmm. was what they were doing. So, so some algos. Yeah. Something yeah. like a yeah. Gibson like you primer. You could design yeah, a Gibson primers. primer. Yeah. Um, and it's cool because you could easily imagine a world where you know you can do fancy. Uh, uh, modifications to DNA nucleotides, biotinylate your nucleotide at a really fancy position using this enzymatic system with hopefully no drawbacks compared to the chemical current synthesis. chemical methods of doing it. Mm -hmm. So this is really interesting. It seems like, so how, how much, I, I'm sure they'll optimize it, but like how much time does this process take? Mm -hmm. Cause it seems like if you're, if you have to like change out the polymerase each time, it seems like you have to do like a lot of washes to, yeah, but you have, to do that. you have to do that with chemical too, right? So mm -hmm. um, I want to say it's faster. I can't remember. Um, the This paper came out a couple of weeks ago. Um, it's definitely possible to miniaturize it, though, and I think that's probably something that they aim to do. And you can probably recover a lot of the lost reagents. Not to mention things like environmental footprint if you're using biological reagents as opposed to like very strong acids that are mm -hmm. traditionally used in chemical syntheses or organic solvents. So I think it's I think it's really promising. I think that DNA synthesis has come a long ways mm -hmm. even with just even in the last couple of years. Yeah. They always talk about how it's a similar thing to semiconductor manufacturing, like Moore's law for how you can fit more chips on, or fit more um, uh, transistors on a chip, or the cost of the chip goes down exponentially. DNA synthesis is doing the same thing. The cost is going down exponentially, mm -hmm. even since like the year 2000. It's very promising, yeah. All right, so I think that was a three point question. So I feel okay. Like Three points. <laughs> Good. Okay. All right. I, I, <laughs> like, am I going to protest that I deserve more points? Launch an appeal. Launch an appeal. Yeah. Mm. Okay. We'll see. When um, I'm losing at the end, I'll appeal. <laughs> so there's no statute on this, right? What? There's no statute of limitations on when I can appeal, right? Like you can do it in any time? Yeah, yeah. Sure. Okay. <laughs> Thank God. Not in the middle of a question. <laughs> Just interrupt the, like, in the... In I think I deserve more points on question five, Jordan. <laughs> Disrupt the flow of the whole uh, conversation. We'll see. We'll see. Right. Anyway, okay, so, Kristen, I'm pretty sure you're going to get this one. A paper Every time she says that to me, oh I get it wrong. My. Every time, without fail. A paper in Nature Medicine in June found that CRISPR induced a DNA damage repair system mediated by what gene in human cells? You said I'm gonna get this. Well, that's that's because we just talked about it. Oh, All right, this was one of P450 Adam's P450 P450 or five five forty. Sorry, no wait. What are Different you? protein. P53s okay. is what it is, which I think is what you're trying. You were to trying. Say. Oh, that's, what that's what you were trying, trying to say. say. The guardian of the yeah. genome, the P53. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. P450 is a um, metabolic enzyme. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That's okay. That's a protein. That's. Protein. I knew what you were trying to say. Yes. So she so, can oh, get the points for that. I'll give it. Okay. I don't know if I. If I no, nah, you're good. You'll that 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 question the question was worth three points, so maybe like two points. Okay. Jordan, what does P fifty three do? Um, it's a tumor suppressor gene, it's right? A tumor suppressor, yeah. So it sort of like induces 
like the question said, it um, induces DNA damage repair mm-hmm. when the genome is. And more than that, at least, what it does is that it, it senses whether or not your DNA is damaged, and if it is, it prevents a cell from replicating. Right, that's, that's, that's also true. That's the real, um, they call it the guardian of the genome mm-hmm. because of that. Because um, if, if your cells are, if your DNA is damaged, likely that is an indicator, indicator that you are a tumor or a cancer cell or something, and so you want to prevent that uh, from replicating. Right. Mm-hmm. So what they find in this paper is that, surprise to no one, CRISPR tends to work best in yeah. cells that have a P53 defective gene. Shocker, your attempt to destroy and edit a genome works better when the thing that is trying to prevent you from destroying or edit your genome is broken. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's concerning because that traditionally will happen in cancer cells. Mm-hmm. So. If you are, for instance, trying to overexpress a protein in some cells, and that winds up happening in cancer cells, that's really bad because cancer cells have worse DNA checking mechanisms. You're probably going to get a lot more of the protein than you want. It's your cells are going to be unhealthy. So that's a little bit cons, a little bit of a consternation. CRISPR stocks just tanked after this paper came mm-hmm. out. It was, I think they also tanked with the. Um... Uh, Bradley papers. Oh yeah, yeah. CRISPR stocks have had a fun, had a, had a fun month. Yeah. yeah. Pretty volatile. Always invest in biotech. Always good news. My biotech stocks are doing great right now. By the way, just just another lesson lesson for our listeners. You know, don't 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 shy away yet. Hold strong. It'll pay off in the long run. Heard it here first. Gene Mods podcast. You were saying that I'm doing it better in a, at adulting. I don't know how to invest in anything. Oh, I don't do that. My mother just tells me where to put my money, and then I put my money there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so, yeah. So that was... that was. I, I know what you were trying to say. That, that'll be two points. Okay, this one is for Adam. Um, in July, James Wilson's lab published a paper showing they could reduce what in gene-edited monkeys? Good Lord, there's a lot of gene editing this yeah. month. that's true in monkeys in monkeys this was uh the gene they were targeting was i don't know if this will help it or not pcsk9 pc do you know what that does that sounds somewhat familiar to me for some reason um i'm gonna uh, i'm gonna guess infection (laughs) nope okay kirsten you want to guess what uh what journal was this in i feel like this was in nature biotech Oh boy. Yeah, that G name does sound mm. familiar. Um, Do you want... Maybe it's a sense, some sort of a, like a sense of smell or something. I, I don't know. That maybe. was a thing that I've seen too. Yeah, where they, like, I edit, like edit out people's sense of smells using CRISPR. I think that was, an, that was about ants. Yeah. I remember there was, there was an yeah, ant. And then they, um... they did it in mice too. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Very okay, this is something else, though. Do All you want right, me to give you an answer? Yeah, what is it? Uh, this is, it reduced cholesterol. Ah, that was going to be my other guess, and I and you didn't. waffled on it. <laughs> PCNK9, is that like a, um, uh, what do you call that enzyme? HMG-CoA reductase is the one in humans. Uh, um, the one that, like, Lipitor treats. It's a LDL uh, cholesterol receptor antagonist. Oh, okay, so, No. Yes. But, okay. Close. Yeah. So, so what do they do? Um, 
so what did it uh i think they reduced the amount of well i can't tell anymore because the network won't let me see papers anymore but i think they reduced the amount of like LDL cholesterol, which I think is the bad That's kind the of bad cholesterol, cholesterol, yeah, by like fifty percent or so. Because monkeys, cool. as you know, have very high cholesterol levels. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, well, this is monkeys are probably a good model for humans. So this is like probably good research for fighting like heart disease and stuff. So this is interesting. Yeah, part of me kind of wonders, like, is gene editing really the way that you want to be reducing these LDL receptors, or is it not easier to just find an antagonist drug? But like we're still so far away from being able to do gene editing, even on things that we have know about a known mechanism for. Mm -hmm. But it's pretty cool that they did that. Yeah. And it worked. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't know too many people with high cholesterol that are going to sign up to get their genes edited to fix their high cholesterol. That's another like what we were talking about before, like one of those like very polygenic kind of things, and that has a lot of environmental. factors as well so that's that's one of those things that's not like you you can't uh target that like you could do sickle cell but yeah mm-hmm. but interesting interesting research um so no one gets that one uh isaac definitely knew that yeah. do you think isaac would i don't know we can ask him later i'll, I'll send him no well because the answers are also i wrote down the answers on this but <laughs> so i don't forget what they were um, I, I can just hear Isaac being like, you guys didn't know that? <laughs> I'll, I'll send Isaac the list of questions <laughs> without the answer later and see if he knows all of them. Um, so this is a not super synthetic biology question, but I think it's interesting. Uh, it has interesting policy implications. It has a lot to do with like personal genomics and stuff. Okay. So I think it's a little related, but I, I saw this sort of blowing up on Twitter and a lot of like popular press about it because it's fairly controversial a list of 1271 genes have been found associated with what complicated phenotype i i say phenotype very loosely because it's not something like hair color or eye color so it's not something physical it's more behavioral it is more behavioral i don't know i feel like there's just so many things that could be an answer to this because social behavior that is affected by a thousand genes has complicated phenotype. <laughs> Sounds um, like my wife right here. Yeah. <laughs> if you have a better guess, go I ahead. was going to guess intelligence. You're very close. Mm. Hmm. Is it more specific than that? It is. It is a, it, it's a little bit different than intelligence, but that's, that's on the right track. Professional success. Mm. That would be a fun regression that analysis to run. Yeah. Um, Not exactly. Hmm. The other thing I had was like sexuality was the other thing I was going to guess until you said socioeconomic. Not sexuality. Yeah. Um. Do you want me to go ahead and give you the the answer? Sure. Yeah. Years of education. So your level of education huh. that you get. Um. So this was very some what? inverse trend with uh with uh. Professional success. No, I'm <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Oh, no, sorry. Sorry. Um, so, this was very controversial, and this got a lot of like, there was a lot of popular press on this, and some of it was a lot better than others. I read Ed Yong's um, article about it, and I think he did a pretty good job, as Ed Yong usually does. Um, but so, they 
did sort of a genome-wide study with a bunch of people um, and looked at sort of different gene variants and how many years of education someone had. Um, and they identified a lot of sort of neurological genes that seems like you're on the right track, but they were able to explain about 11% of the variance in all this, which is not very much. Um, so basically the regression is like a bunch of data points that look like a cloud and there's a line through it that's like, okay, I guess that's, I guess that's a regression, but... So I'm wondering why they did this research in the first place. Um, a lot, I think the, the, the uh, researchers were like saying that you could use this positively, that you could help people succeed in their education based on what gene variants they have. It, this is all very. This is very prickly. I, I don't know. Yeah. I, don't know I really, I really don't like this. To yeah. be honest, on a lot yeah. of reasons. I, I don't really. The that science well. sounds really sketchy. The fact that you can use thirteen hundred genes in God knows how many pr principal components to like try to explain eleven percent of the variance, yeah. Yeah. which is not real. But then also, like you mentioned, the ethical implications yeah. of this. Yeah. I feel like it's. I wonder. I wonder how this research result's gonna help anybody really like people. Do they um, sample like variety of different races? Like how did they do in socioeconomic status? Yeah. Uh, I'm I would hope so. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I feel like yeah, I feel like in terms of education, socioeconomic status is probably going to explain most of that right. variation. Right. Let me look a little bit yeah. more about this. I mean, article. we're no experts in this field, right? And like maybe they did really good science with this, but I have a really hard time believing that even if you sampled the entire population of this planet, that you could find some large number of genes that efficiently like some linear combination of those yeah. genes efficiently explains variation. It just seems a hot load of nonsense. Yeah. To it's me. hard to it's hard to yeah but more importantly this yeah. is not the sort of study that should be done in my opinion i don't see any way that that gives yeah like, i mean you, you you tried to defend it earlier but how do you well i don't I, I don't think i was really not defend I don't, it, i'm not yeah. defending it yeah. i'm sort of just more saying that this is how the the authors yeah. of the study were trying to yeah. defend it to defend it um yeah i i don't really like this study either definitely relevant for what we do though I yeah. I, do you think you would call this synthetic biology? Or? I would. Yeah. I would. Systems biology, yeah. for Systems. sure. For sure. Mm -hmm. um, whether or not you believe that systems biology and synthetic biology can play nice with each other, mm. sometimes they do. Most, most times they do. Most of the time they do. Cool. All right. No points there. That's and none to the so authors of the study either. <laughs> yeah. I can send you this article if you want. That's yeah, very... I'm kind of curious as an amateur statistician to try to see if I can make heads or tails. Um, let's see. That was for Kirsten, so no points. Okay, uh, Adam, you asked for an RNA question, and here is an RNA question. Oh, boy. Uh, I'm going to get this wrong now. You might need some help, but I thought I, I saw this, and I don't remember. This is probably one of the Nature, uh, nature journals, but I thought it was really interesting. The Anderson Lab is using what kind of RNA to get better protein yields from translation? But I did present this at group meeting. Oh, really? So you is know this? Is this the circular RNA? This is circular yeah. this RNA. This was so cool. Yeah. I had no idea about this. Yeah, Kirsten was there when I presented yes. this at group meeting, in fact. Yeah, so 
Uh, it's in eukaryotes, I think, right, that they're doing this work. Yes. Um, so my knowledge of eukaryotic biology is weak, notwithstanding. But the idea is that, um, so normally when RNAs are made in a, a eukaryotic cell, um, they, they get they get they degraded. Get, they get yeah. degraded, and as a result, you have to process them. So there's the whole thing with like intron splicing, but then also you add on a cap, you add on a tail, you try to just protect the actual message from being degraded by cellular enzymes that will chew up the RNA. What these guys did was they actually found an a ribozyme that was capable of circularizing the mm -hmm. RNA. Um, so that there is no tail for the nuclease to sort of attack. And there's a lot of games that people play normally when you're... I, I've done this a lot with my own research with engineering RNA in certain shapes to protect it from, mm -hmm. from RNA's degradation. Right. Ribonucleases don't tend to chew up RNA that's really structured. Mm -hmm. They really like to find unstructured tails that they can just start chewing away at. Mm -hmm. So... Um, being able to make the circular RNA, it sounded like they got really high expression yields. Yeah, it's, I think they said like they got 800% more protein wow. than um, unprotected mRNA, and they got like something like 50% more than like the other methods of like the other synthetic methods of protecting yeah. your mRNA. I wonder if like the translational system, like using circular RNA, is different from. Yeah, I was really confused about that too. Because how does the RNA actually get, get threaded through the ribosome? Yeah, how, that was how on? They didn't really talk about how that works. I don't remember. Does it get exactly. uncircularized before it goes into the ribosome? Um, I guess it must, right? So, like, maybe when the ribosome ribosome can bind to the IRES, which is the internal ribosome entry site in eukaryotes, it's sort of the analog to a prokaryotic mm -hmm. ribosome binding site. Um, and maybe when the ribosome binds, it's able to um, linearize it. Mm. That would be my guess for how that works, actually, biophysically. I was very confused about it, because they didn't really mention... They, they did a good job of, like, explaining the whole, like how RNA gets degraded thing in the introduction of the paper, but they never really touched on how it gets translated. Yeah, I don't remember, actually. Um, it's a neat idea, though. And it was they, very they, cool. they found this ribozyme that did it, um, which is, you know, ribozymes, to the listeners, by the way, are RNAs that can do chemistry, mm -hmm. so can catalyze reactions. A lot of the classic ribozymes are RNAs that actually cleave themselves, mm -hmm. um, but there are some ribozymes that do actual synthetic chemistry. The ribosome is probably the most famous example of a ribozyme, mm -hmm. an enzyme made of RNA, because most of the catalytic activity of a ribosome for translation is actually accomplished by RNA nucleotides. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really cool paper. I think that was an NAR. I don't remember exactly. I don't remember either. It's on one of my many tabs that are open <laughs> on my computer. Yeah, so cool. I'm glad you got that right because that was the RNA question yeah. I had for you. Okay. <laughs> I thought that that was fairly. Uh, I, I thought that that was a five point question. Yeah, no, that uh, that was that was luckily it hit one of my um, alerts as well when that paper came up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. This is the last question. Oh um, God! Oh man! Here we go. I hope you got it right. Okay, this is for Kirsten. What popular HBO show did a whole episode about gene editing in June? Oh, so it's the John Oliver episode, yeah. yes. Yep, it's last week tonight. Yeah. Um, did either of you see this? Yes. I did, yes. What, what did you guys think about it? I thought he did a really good job summarizing. Like, he didn't really stand on each, like, in either side, like, either negative or positive about it, but he did a good job explaining it 
like in layman terms I feel like um yeah I I I was kind of worried that I was gonna because I really like John Oliver and I really mm-hmm. like his show and I was worried that I was gonna start hating him I don't know after <laughs> so just like by looking at the title and like everything but I thought he did a good job just kind of um informing the public about what it is yeah, I'm sure you have probably somewhat different opinions because you're more involved with the the biohacking yeah, well, I, community, and he had a more negative take on that than that's the true. rest of no, his. No, I was spiel. I was like I was uh, I I have some complicated feelings about Josiah Zayner, and I think like some of the things I, I think he was fair with some of the things he said about about Zayner and how um, you need to be responsible with that kind of thing, right? I don't think it's a. I also don't think it's a good idea to get drunk and crisper yourself. That's, <laughs> I don't think Josiah Zayner really does either. Yeah, he's sort of turned around yeah. after the whole Aaron Treywick thing, and yeah. like, um, yeah. Maybe we should just get our crisper jokes from John Oliver. Yeah, he stands seems to be for, doing. Crisper now st- stands for crunchy rectums in sassy pink Ray Vans. I think. I'm so <laughs> impressed oh that you know that. Yeah. Well, I just no, I just watched it yeah. like. Uh, right before we started this, oh, okay. so I watched it like earlier this afternoon. Yeah, I think in terms of reporting by the media, it's a much better representation than, for instance, that New York Times article that we talked about last time because they actually interviewed real live people that do this, mm-hmm. like Jennifer Doudna. Like I didn't think they, I, he didn't do the interviews himself, but like used clips. From used other clips interviews. from them. So the unicorn I, question, though. Remember that question? That was George. George Church gets asked, you know, yeah. can we make a unicorn? unicorn? And just sort of stares confusedly for a second. And he does say, yes. Yes. <laughs> um, I was. I agree with Kirsten. I was pleasantly surprised by how it turned out. I was went in expecting the worst, and it mm-hmm. wasn't that bad. Yeah. That said, there's been. He spent a lot of time talking about gene drives, which have been the topic of. A renewed interest I think in the last couple of weeks with um, the DOD recently re- releasing a report saying that they find that gene drives might be in in um, non-human organisms are one of the major concerns moving forward that synthetic biology pu- poses to the public mm-hmm. um, and I don't think John, John Oliver you know mentioned it and talked about how this could be a useful thing for things like malaria control but um, there's a lot of there's a lot of explaining, I think, the synthetic biology community still needs to continue to do to mm-hmm. try to get this message across. That right. said, I think he did a very good job mm-hmm. of keeping it at a relatively low level. Yeah, mm-hmm. I agree. Without us making without making our community sound too much like, ooh, we wanted really muscular beagles, because right. like, yes, that was a thing that happened. Just, I, didn't, I didn't even know about that. I did know about that, and I was just kind of like, oh, God, I well, had no, forgotten. Well, what I, what I know about that is that there's that myostatin mutation, I think, actually occurs naturally in whippets. Oh. Mm. There are very muscular, like, look up a picture of a, it's called a bully whippet. They're, like, jacked. It's crazy. Mm. Um, and that's just, like, a random, I think, naturally occurring mutation. Mm. Um and whippets are it's it's very funny because whippets are the skinny little dogs and then you just have these huge anyway um one thing i am curious about is what this will do you know down the line to interest in synthetic biology so i i sometimes tell the story that one of the reasons i was interested in this field was when i was a lot younger i watched um craig venner on 60 minutes really did an interview with craig venner 
this would have been ages ago probably i don't know when jcvi like really got off the ground it was obviously after solera but um and i mean he kind of came off as craig benner frequently mm-hmm. does but it's like that guy looks awesome he does really cool work and i was mm-hmm. like I, I was probably in middle school and i was like wow mm-hmm. you know biotechnology really is interesting hopefully this segment can start to do some of the same thing yeah i think it's interesting to be able to like inject humor into it as well because i think that is i think generally well generally with news and complicated topics i think having humor makes it go down a little easier and i think that that's a good way to communicate with people another challenge i think um, about just kind of synthetic biology and like public perception of it is that the field is growing so fast and like a lot of new research is coming out it's hard to because like CRISPR was such a you know glorious thing like oh my god it's gonna cure all the diseases and everything and now like new researchers are finding out more about negative effects of it and yeah I, I just think that the, the whole pace of how the field is going is also kind of hindering how we can communicate it to the public, with, which I think that John Oliver did a good job of also just kind of pinpointing out like the current issues. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Right now, people know that CRISPR exists, yeah, but they don't know anything else, I think, yeah. outside the field. It's but very it's... hard, even if you read mm-hmm. the Wikipedia article on CRISPR, and I did that the first time I heard about CRISPR. Mm-hmm. Right. Trying to understand and what John Oliver it's talking about John Oliver like with the joke about crunchy rectums and whatever pink ravens was making fun of the fact that this is what it stands for not really this is what it stands for clustered regularly interspaced short palindrome <laughs> you won't so hear this conversation lab the other day is that not, none of us knew what the I stood yeah. for in CRISPR <laughs> no one needs to know that because it's not. At all relevant to your understanding of what it does, right? Um, but yeah, uh, see, so was I thought that joke was that that sort of points to there are a lot of like complicated things about CRISPR that you're like you don't need to know to understand how right. it works, and that was the that was the joke. It's mm-hmm. just pretend that it's this ridiculous acronym and not these words that you're probably are going to confuse you. Yeah. Um, all in all probably a net positive for the field certainly a better net positive than the travesty that was jurassic world 2 did you see jurassic i did world not 2? see jurassic world 2 i saw jurassic world 1 and almost walked out of the theaters <laughs> i was so angry of the representation of well isn't there also biology that in the movie wasn't isn't there there's well they brought up in the episode that there's also that dwayne the rock johnson yeah. movie rampage they crispered him to make him like more like a gorilla or something, or Isn't the gorilla there... more like a human or wasn't something. There... Yeah, wasn't there like a TV show that was going? To there was be supposed to be a CRISPR TV CRISPR? show yeah. where the premise was that they would use CRISPR to commit acts of bioterrorism. Yeah, J Lo was going to be in it. I don't yeah. think that wound up happening. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of the media does not do nearly as good of a job as I think John Oliver's segment does. Yes, and we can look forward to hopefully more press coverage as the field expands. Mm-hmm. It's really funny. Uh, my my boyfriend watches the show and I came home and he was watching it and he's like, I've heard of these people because I will talk about them sometimes. He's like, I don't know who you're talking about. But then they came up and he's like, oh, yeah, you, you talked about Jennifer Doudna and George Church. I've, I've heard these names before. Now we can put a face. That, that's it. an accomplishment. That's a, yeah. 
it does feel like a small world when you're like, oh my god, they're on John Oliver right now. Yeah. <laughs> cool. I have I have relevant knowledge about something. Sure. <laughs> Once in a million years it happens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> awesome. So that was the last question? That was the last question. Final score? Uh, I have no idea. It doesn't We matter. all win! <laughs> Everyone's a winner. I think you might have a couple more points, but, you know, it's fine. So, at the end of this, so, I think we've also been doing a short part of the segment where do you have any other research that you've heard of lately that you find interesting that you want to mention real quick? Yeah, actually, I can bring up a couple of things from June um, from the news quiz that I did. So I mentioned briefly the uh, uh, the DOD report that recently came out. They mm-hmm. made a list of the top challenges facing synthetic biology from a security perspective. Mm. I found that a really interesting read. Um, let me pull that up really quick with what they decided was the most difficult challenges facing the field. Uh, the DOD said that at the top concern were recreating known pathogenic viruses, mm-hmm. which probably goes back to the horsepox incident from a couple of months ago, mm-hmm. making biochemicals via in situ synthesis, which I think is probably slang for making cannabinoids and yeast, mm-hmm. and making existing bacteria more dangerous making existing viruses more dangerous, and so on. What they didn't find a concern with was modifying the human genome using human gene drives. They said that was the least area of concern. Probably because they know we are nowhere near being able to do a gene drive on humans. Yeah. Mosquitoes, maybe. Yeah. Means to be asked. So that was really interesting. Um, in terms of Science, I think you did a good job hitting the really exciting papers. The one that was maybe most exciting, we talked about Scramble last month. Um, there was a cool paper out of the Ellington Lab for directed evolution of Selino proteins. I think I saw that, but I wasn't sure how. I, I think I saw that and moved past it. Uh, but tell us, tell yeah. us a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, how many amino acids are there, Jordan? There are 20 amino acids. There are 20 amino acids. Right, 20, like, canonical ones. 20 maybe, it's confusing. There's actually naturally 21 amino acids. Technically 22 if you include formal methionine, but no one ever seems to include formal methionine. But selenocysteine is a common amino acid in some plants. Um, Mm. It's exactly equivalent to cysteine, which has sulfur in it, but rather than using sulfur, they use this element called selenium that nobody actually cares about, but Mm -hmm. there it is. Selenium's neat. It has a lot of the same chemistry as sulfur, um, but it forms really strong bonds with itself. Selenium, selenium binds, bonds are really strong. Sulfur does the same thing. Yeah, and that's something. Bonds. That's really a important big for, important thing about cysteine is that that sort of cross-links different amino acids. Selenium does the same thing, but the bonds are a lot harder to break than sulfur bonds. So if you wanted to make a protein that had a disulfide bond, if you made it with selenium, it wouldn't break. So the idea is, wouldn't it be nice if you could, for instance, make an antibody, which have a couple important disulfide bonds linking the residues um, that can get cleaved when they're used as di- or when they're used as therapeutics, for instance, inserted into the body. If you made it out of selenium, it has the potential to be more stable. Mm. Um, Do they self form that diselenium bond? I think so. I think it's uh, actually more favored than the formation of a disulfide bond, which requires mm-hmm. an oxidant to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, what the Ellington lab did, and the Ellington lab being very good at directed evolution, 
Um, they evolved a uh, bacteria that could incorporate selenocysteine at, uh, an, I think it's an amber codon. I assume it's an amber codon. Well, isn't that, isn't selenocysteine also an amino acid that can be naturally, like, I thought that it was naturally also in some, like, archaea or It something. can, but not in bacteria, I don't think. Um, mm -hmm. Bacteria don't have a natural synthetase for it. Mm -hmm. So they evolved a, a tRNA synthetase that can, like, load selenocysteine onto the tRNA and then incorporate it into a protein by basically requiring a beta-lactamase, which is an antibiotic resistance gene, to have the selenocysteine. They did a couple of rounds of selection, and they managed to evolve a bacteria that could have pretty much quantitative incorporation of selenocysteine into its genome. So this is just opening up a whole thing a, a whole avenues of new chemistries that you can do by being able to incorporate um, a completely new amino acid. So non-standard amino acid incorporation is something that's been going on in the field for years. A lot of the non-standard amino acids that people use are things like that look like phenylalanine, that have rings like phenylalanine. This is just a completely different chemistry. Mm -hmm. Being able to use selenocysteine because it has a lot of interesting chemical properties mm -hmm. could be really useful in the future. That's really cool. I didn't know anything. I've heard of selenocysteine, but I didn't really know what the point of it is. Right. Yeah. It's similar to cysteine, but selenocysteine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what about you, Kirsten? Anything good in July? Um, I have like one paper from June, but I don't know if you guys already talked about it because it was in a bioarchive for a while. Um, and we also had the professor coming in and talk to us about the system. Mm -hmm. You probably were at the talk. I was, but we have not mentioned this on the podcast. So okay. Okay. Give it a go. So yeah, sometimes I will hear, I will see something in bioarchive bio and then see the paper later. And I'm like, this seems really familiar and I don't know where I've seen this before. And then I realize it was on bioarchive. Yeah. So yeah, it just came out in Nature Biotech like in June, um, early June. And basically it's about the system, they call it Evolver, um, mm -hmm. and they call it a scalable do-it-yourself do framework. What it is is basically a, um, it's a system where you can do a high throughput evolving growth experiments in either yeast or bacteria, whichever um, organism you want to do, but it's easy to build. Um, they, well, they claim that it's easy to build and it can be automated. Um, so I guess it's, um, I don't know too much about it, but the whole point is that it's DIY framework. And um, he, I remember he, meant, he mentioning during his talk that he can easily imagine like building the system as sort of like a high school experiment, like mm -hmm. a biology experiment where they can set it up themselves and do a, you know, growth experiment where you can, um, have basically some sort of a directed evolution experiment just easily set up. Um, yeah, but I I do remember reading the BioArchive paper briefly, and it seemed a lot more complicated than the he made it seem like during his talk. Um, I don't know. You were at the talk. What do you, what do you think? Yeah. So uh, which lab? Which lab was this from, Kirsten? Yeah, again? this was from uh, Mokalee Lab at Boston University. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. There's a lot of really neat stuff that they can do with this platform. I think, are they using yeast or bacteria? In the, in the paper, I think they used yeast. Yeast yeah. um, for just doing kind of high throughput evolution yeah. experiments. So Although high throughput, quotation mark, because... Higher throughput than I can pipette. Yeah, Let's put it true. that way. Yes. So that's pretty neat. Um, I actually have one more question that maybe Jordan knows, because this is sort of up your alley. This was okay. a very minor paper that got okay. published in 
frankly, a no-name journal, because I don't remember the name of the journal <laughs> last week, but it's out of the Barrick Lab at UT Austin. And it's essentially about, uh, they discovered a microorganism mm-hmm. that can synthesize gel and gum okay. naturally, which is really exciting because it's a an analog of what common material that a DIY bio lab might find itself buying a lot of. What is the what is the thing it's synthesizing again? It's called gelan gum. It's G E L L A N gum. It's a gum. Okay. Is it and like a gel? Is it like agar? It is agar actually. Okay. Agar. Yeah. So this is um, I want to the the um, it's called the Journal of Microbiological Biological Education hmm. at the Barrick Lab. And it's a really neat paper. They basically discovered this bacterium that I'm looking it up now is called Sphingomonas possimobilis. Yay. That can <laughs> synthesize this gum. But what's really cool, so agar is normally, do you know where agar actually comes from? I have no idea. It's from seaweed. Oh, okay. That um, makes sense. It's kind of expensive actually so if you're like trying to set up a lab or doing diy bio mm-hmm. like making plates the agar is probably the most expensive component of that so agar is um a, a thickener mm-hmm. that we use when we're trying to make uh media solidify so that you can grow bacteria on it mm-hmm. you can actually get that like in a grocery store though because it can be like a vegetarian alternative to gelatin i think oh uh, really mm-hmm. yeah you, it's agar agar you can yeah. get that in grocery stores in the mm-hmm. natural section thing or like an Asian grocery store sometimes. Well, anyway, what you can do is you grow up this bacterium, right? And then you just dunk the bacteria into the media that you're trying to solidify. And then it just solidifies into the gum because it's into the gel because it's secreting all that stuff. And then you can just use it for whatever culturing applications you want to do. That's really interesting. It's, it's, I think it would be a really good, like, biological demonstration yeah. for people if you if you don't want to make your own plates or something are there so i know that like if you wanted to use like gelatin as a substrate there are a lot of organisms that like uh don't break down gelatin or don't have gelatinases mm-hmm. do you yeah. know if there's like or like anything like that with this kind of gum or i can't find anything about it it sounds like no But that's all I know. It's okay. it's really just a methods paper. Okay. Um, but Barrick Lab is another lab at UT that's done a lot of work in directed evolution. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of nice that they're that they're talking about these sort of things. It sounds like it was a collaboration with an iGEM team as well. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Um, cool. So I don't know. I just I found this paper. It came up on my notes. It's a really quick read, and I was like, that's kind of neat. Happy so story. Does the media contain that bacteria once it's solidified? Like, do you know how they deal with that? I think what they do is they like add antibiotics to it. And they die. I guess, but they've okay. already made the gum right. so it'll solidify. Interesting. Um or they just get outcompeted because this is not a frankly good bacteria competing Mm. i don't think it's very fast growing um but they say here if you compare the cost oh they didn't actually add antibiotic because they did a do-it-yourself minimal media recipe which by the way contains dried skim milk marmite 
honey, table salt, Epsom salt, trisodium phosphate, and ammonia, and citric acid. That's how you make media. Mm. And you need something to solidify it, and apparently cornstarch doesn't work, so you just add in this bacterial culture. That's interesting. So would the bacterial culture optimally solidify if you outgrow it for a long time, like in the plants? It, it doesn't sound like it. So That's really weird that once it's added to a media, I see uh, You have to cool it, you cool it down. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Same thing as what you would do with auger. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it chills at like a lower temperature. Oh, so it, it would just do it in the fridge, fridge. or something. Um, but they say the cost is about one-tenth the cost of auger. Interesting. I don't know. Sometimes you can find interesting things in yeah, name journals. Yeah, you know, you just hit, you just see this like uh, alert, and you're like, "That was a fun read. I'm glad I read that." Yeah. So, just happy story to to end this out tonight. All right. Yeah. You have anything else? Nope. All right. Well, with that, I guess we should thank the Northwestern Center for Synthetic Biology uh, for hosting the Gene Mods podcast, which you can find on SoundCloud or iTunes or any other medium through which you get. Your podcast. Your podcast. Yes. Yeah. And check out the Northwestern Center for Synthetic Biology. They have great research and great events going yeah. on. So a lot just... of new programming that we're bringing up in the upcoming future as well. So yep. if you're an upcoming faculty member or postdoc or grad student or undergrad or someone yeah. that just really loves this and wants to talk to a bunch of people that are enthusiastic about synthetic biology, come up to sunny Evanston, Illinois. Yep. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, y'all.